Have you ever found yourself in a position where you have to do something nice for someone that you just don't like? Everybody's laughing. Maybe that hits a chord. There, there are times where I marvel at stories my wife tells me. You know, she's a nurse. She's the one that kind of is important to a patient's care. If you're going to get that warm blanket that makes things all cozy, it's probably because she brought it to you. If you're going to get your pain, meals on, or pain pills on a timely fashion, it's probably because she brought them to you. And then she tells me stories about how mean patients can be, how she'll have a patient yell obscenities at her because she didn't remove the tray from the room fast enough, even though that's not her job bringing food trays in and out, or, or because the patient is mad because she didn't respond to the call like quick enough, even though she was next door making sure somebody stayed alive for a little bit longer. It's amazing how mean they can be and then expect her to be nice. But if you think about it, her entire job is to be nice to people. We certainly know what it's like, I think, to be nice to someone who's not nice to us. How difficult that can be. Well, I think we can also certainly say that Christ is the epitome of what it is to be nice. I mean, he went to the cross and died for us. It doesn't get nicer than that, does it? And yet, as we understand all that Christ has done that's wrapped up in our salvation, do we really comprehend how ultimate that niceness was comparative to how horrible we were? I don't think we understand how unlovely we were, how unlikable we were, how downright nasty we were when he did the ultimate of niceness. As we turn to our passage in Colossians this morning, let's remember that, that Paul has been celebrating the transforming work of the gospel. The gospel that, that centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We, we've already seen that, that the gospel message not only saves us, it transforms us. It makes us begin to think like Christ thinks. It makes us begin to act like Christ acts. Ultimately, it makes us look like Christ looks. That is what we mean by gospel transformation. Yet, yet to understand this, this transformation properly, to understand it fully, we need to understand the, the work that Christ accomplished when he provided our salvation. That, that's been the aim that Paul's had so far in this letter, as we've been looking at the first chapter of, of Colossians. Salvation comes by faith in Christ. But, but faith is only possible because of what Christ has done and what he continues to do. Paul's been describing that here in the first chapter. God the Father sent Jesus Christ on this rescue mission, this, this mission of salvation, we call it. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us into his own kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. God the Father did this so that, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Christ could be preeminent over everything. Christ was preeminent over the old creation by virtue simply of being the creator. He was preeminent. Well, he's also preeminent over the new creation by virtue of being the recreator, the, the reconciler. That's what we've been seeing here. The cross is central to this plan that, that God has laid out, a plan that began eternity past and is flowing right through history. The cross is central to that plan to ensure that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will clearly 
and permanently be preeminent over all things. Of course, if the cross, that the cross, as we're reminded last week, specifically we through a celebration of Easter, we went through Good Friday and Easter, the, the cross is only effective when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We have to believe in, in his work. Salvation does not come automatically. It, it comes through what he's done. Now, if you have not placed your, your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to. You, you're not automatically saved. You need to accept Jesus yourself. It is not enough to just understand what he has done. You need to accept because of what you have done and because of how you've lived sinfully, you need a Savior. If you don't think that, and you have not ever personally done that, you're unsaved. If you think you're good enough, you're simply deceived. You need Jesus as Savior. So I encourage you to talk to me after the service. Send me an email there for more information. I'd love to share with you how you can know Jesus as Savior. This morning, though, we're, we're looking at a passage where Paul is writing to people who has made that decision, that have come to that point. They've accepted Christ as Savior. He's writing to believers. He's writing to people who trust Jesus as Savior. Paul's purpose is not to explain the need for faith. His purpose is to explain what happened and what is happening and what will happen, all because of faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wants to ensure that we understand that this grand scheme that God has to make Christ preeminent over all, this preeminent over the old creation, preeminent over the new creation, the church, Paul called it last week. We, Paul wants to make sure that when we understand this grand scheme, we understand that there is a significance to each of us personally. This cosmic plan of redemption has a personal aspect to it. We're only going to look at three verses this morning, three verses that really form one sentence in, in the original language. As you screen, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Look at those with me now as I read them. Paul writes, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul is explaining what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen in the life of every believer in this sentence. That, that means Paul begins in the past. What has happened. He begins with the past reality, which I call rebellion. Look again at verse 21. Here's the past reality. Here's rebellion. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. You were engaged in evil deeds. No matter how you cut it, these are not favorable descriptors. This is not the way you want your resume to read. If you're applying for God's grace, you're not going to put this down on your resume. Look at these again. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. We don't sound like nice people. Let's think about these words for a moment. Alienated. 
That, that word means that we were considered foreign or, 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 or strange from, from God's perspective. We had no formal relationship. It might be a little bit about our relationship with a foreign country. I mentioned the, the Swedbergs this morning in Brazil. Well, as citizens of the United States, I have a relationship with the United States. I do not have a relationship with Brazil. I'm a foreigner in Brazil. I, I am strange to Brazil. Well, because of our native sinfulness, we were alienated from God. We had no vital relationship with God. We had no right to enter his kingdom. We had no citizenship in God's kingdom. Yet really, my example of my connection to Brazil is too gentle to describe what's really going on. It's too gentle of a comparison because look at the next thing that Paul wrote. Not only were we alienated, we were hostile in mind. Paul uses a term here that, that can be used to describe an active military engagement. The, the word he uses is a word that's often translated as enemy. We were enemies with God in our mind. So instead of thinking my relationship with Brazil is probably more accurate to think about the relationship I would have had as a U.S. citizen the day after Pearl Harbor with Japan. That's more the relationship we had with God. We were not just non-relationship. We were active combatants. We were at war with one another. The only relationship that would have existed after Pearl Harbor between me and Japan was that of enmity and, and hostility. Paul's describing this as the past reality that the Colossians had as unbelievers. Paul is describing the past reality that we had as unbelievers. Our former reality was we were at war with God in our minds. Now, if we know our theology, we know that's a very foolish thing to be, right? God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We are not exactly all-powerful. As weak as they come, to be at war with God is foolhardy. But that's where we were in our minds. We were at war with God. Our thinking was to plot how we could overthrow God's rule in our life. At every turn, we wanted to overthrow God. Our relationship was not one of a passive estrangement. It was one of active rebellion against God. How do we know it was active rebellion? Because our alienation and our hostility expressed itself. Expressed itself in, what's the word there? Evil deeds. My, my life as an unbeliever was simply the outworking of my rebellion. My, my opposition to God was on full display because everything I did was evil deeds. And that's true for you as well. Sure, none of us maybe were as evil as evil could be. That through, if you look at the history of mankind, I'm sure we can all find men that displayed greater evil deeds than we ever did, but that's only because God denied us the opportunity to display them. We were evil through and through. If God had not restrained us, the reality was that any of us are capable of any level of evil if we thought it would aid us in our rebellion against God. The only thing that holds us back as unbelievers from the greatest evil is we can't see how it will help us. We were evil through and through. And the evil that we did demonstrates 
the reality that we were a bunch of active rebels against God. Now, if you're honest with yourself, there's no way you can doubt this past reality. You lived it. You may have hit it, but you lived it. The past reality, rebellion. No surprise there. We, we all remember it. The, the question isn't really whether we were rebels. The question is why, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. That is the real question. Why would God allow his son to do this? Why would his son do this? That is the question that should continually stun us. What is shocking is not our past reality. What is shocking is our present reality, described by reconciliation. Yet, he has now reconciled you. That's what Paul says. Reconciliation, that is the present reality. And this is also the center of Paul's idea. It's the core of his thought he has reconciled. That is the main verb of this entire sentence that runs from, from verse 21 all the way through verse 23. He has reconciled. Paul is laying out an amazing, stunning, shocking contrast. The New American Standard translates it accurately when it says, yet he has now reconciled you, but, but I think the New American Standard may have smoothed the language out a little too much and slightly masked the, the point that Paul is making. A more literal translation, if we go all the way back to verse 21, be along this lines, literally, and you, he's pointing at you, at one time you were all those ugly things, alienated, enemies, evil, you were this, but now, he, Jesus Christ, he has reconciled you. The, the but now is, is as emphatic as Paul can make it. Our, our present reality is a, a complete break with our past. Our present reality, reconciliation, is totally severed from the past reality of rebellion. Re, remember, reconciliation is if the establishment of a relationship, a relationship of, of peace. It's the ending of all hostility. That, that means our alienation that was there that has been replaced with a vital relationship with God. There was no relationship, but now there is a relationship. Likewise, the, the warring in our minds, this hostility, this enmity, this, this seeing God as our enemy, that, that's been replaced with peace. We considered God the enemy, but now we consider God our Father. As extremely contrasting as you can get. There, there's no overlap. There was a past, but now present. We, we've a complete rupture in the timeline of our lives. That's the point Paul's trying to drive home here. Uh, of course, the, the means by which this rupture had occurred, is the, the way that this break was achieved, the, the way God did this is the event that we talked so much about last week. It came at great expense on our behalf. It came because the one who reconciled us is the one 
that we saw as an enemy prior. Christ died for us. He sacrificed himself for us. Paul makes sure that, that we cannot forget that God's plan always centers on his son. Our salvation centers on the cross. Look there at, at verse 22. We were reconciled in his fleshly body through death. This traumatic break that we have, this but now event, was through the death of Christ, his fleshly body through death. It took the death of Jesus. Jesus had to die so that we could experience our present reality. You may wonder, by the way, why it is Paul wrote fleshly body here. Is he trying to make some statement about physical flesh or something? No, if nothing like that. We've had a couple weeks in between, so you may have forgotten by now, but in the very previous sentence that we looked at two weeks ago, four verses earlier in the, the previous sentence, right before this one, Paul used the word body, and he used it metaphorically, referred to the church. Paul's just writing for clarity here. He talked about the body, Christ's body is the church. He wants to make sure we understand when he says body again, he's talking about a different sense here. He's talking about the physical body of Christ that hung on the cross. He doesn't want us confused. He, he's simply clarifying we are not reconciled through the church of Jesus Christ. The church cannot reconcile us to God, regardless of what some churches may have taught down through the centuries or over the centuries. The church cannot save us. The only thing that can reconcile us to God is the physical death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Of course, Paul's already explained that we need to believe in this fact, as, as I mentioned. We need to believe in the cross work of, of Christ for it to be applied to us, for us to experience reconciliation. But Paul's being as clear as he can. This dramatic break, this severing in our life, this rupture of the timeline of our lives, it all centers on the cross work of Christ. He died physically for us. Our present reality is reconciliation rather than rebellion because Christ died on the cross. The present reality, reconciliation. Let me help us make sure we're keeping track of things here as we go. Rebellion, but now reconciliation. Alienation from God, but now relationship with God. Hostility against God, but now peace with God. Yet remember our rebellion produced evil deeds. What can be done about evil deeds? What's done is done, right? The past is the past. What, what has been done cannot be erased. We, we cannot undo the past, can we? No, we cannot undo the past. But we're not the ones who reconcile ourselves. We cannot do anything about the past, but God certainly can. Because of the cross, not only is there a present reality to consider, there is also future reality. Future reality called recreated. The main verb, the main action of our sentence, he, Jesus, remember, he reconciled us. And if you look again at verse 22, we can see that Paul goes on, he explains, he did this for a purpose. There's a reason he did this. There's a reason he reconciled us, a reason that has to do with those past evil deeds. He reconciled us in order to present you before him, that is before Jesus, holy 
and blameless and beyond reproach. Have you ever had a child come present something to you, really proud, presenting something to you? Grace and I have been laughing frequently here of late because all winter long, Finley, our granddaughter, has been asking Grandma, can I go dig worms? She loves, apparently, to dig worms. And she gets that from her mother. Because I can vividly remember the day that Katie, when was not much older, sorry Katie, I'm telling a story about you. Katie was not much older than, than Finley, came and proudly presented a handful of worms. Her, her hands were not very big, but she probably had at least a dozen worms crawling through her fingers as she held them out to show me her prize. I can easily imagine Finley doing that yesterday with it being nice weather out, going out and digging worms and coming and presenting a handful of worms. But I also remember when Katie did that, her hands were filthy. Those worms were dirty, and so were her hands. So just imagine if Finley had done that yesterday, her hands would have been just as dirty because earthworms give you dirty hands. There's no way around it. I guess unless you lick them off or something, but I wouldn't advise that. Yet, I have no doubt that if we looked at Finley's hands today, they'd be clean. Because if she had gotten dirt like that yesterday, I'm sure mom would have thrown her in the tub today, or last night, before today. And by the time she comes here today, she is presentable in a clean fashion. That's a bit of the picture of what Paul's describing here. In this purpose statement that he gives us in, in verse 22, Christ reconciled us so that we might be properly presented. We are what he holds in his hands, yet we're no longer dirt covered by our evil deeds. We are completely cleaned up by his reconciling work. Our present reality has this future goal of being presentable. Christ wants to be able to present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Holy. We will be, in reality, what we already are in status, set apart from all sin, blameless. We will be like an acceptable sacrifice in the Old Testament system, free from any imperfection. We'll be blameless and beyond reproach. We will have the, the merits of Christ's righteousness applied so perfectly to our lives that it will be as if we'd never sinned at all. Christ's righteousness will totally and completely cover us. Think about it. Christ went to the cross to reconcile us so that he can transform us into his perfect presentation of imputed righteousness. Our evil deeds, our, our past reality will no longer show up on our account. They've been wiped away by the work of Christ. Instead, the righteousness of Christ is all that shows. His, his perfections his, is all that will show up on our account. We are recreated with his righteousness. We will be holy and blameless and beyond reproach, recreated when he presents us. His righteousness alone will be all that is seen. That's our future reality. The future reality recreated. Paul dealt here with our past, our present, and our future. 
And if you think about it, it seems like that's plenty of handle in a single sentence, isn't it? We've covered past, present, and future, and they're all amazing when you put it all together, what Christ has done. But apparently, Paul is not finished yet because he adds a, a conditional element to all of this in verse 23. He's described these three realities, our past, our present, our future. He's described these. The past reality is a given. We were born into that. The present and future realities, however, they, they require Christ reconciling us. The, the, the question that could pop in our heads as we're thinking through this, how do we know if the present and future are ours? How do we know that Jesus has reconciled us? So in verse 23, before Paul wraps up this amazing sentence, he adds the reality test. The reality test persistence. A couple of decades ago, there was a movie, The Truman Show. Many of you may know that movie. It was built around the idea that a man's entire life was a TV show. All the other people in the man's life, they were characters cast to play part in this, this show. From, from birth to the plan of till death, this one man would not know that everything about his life was scripted. And the whole world was watching. He had no idea that he was living in a fantasy. He had no idea his life was not reality. But cameras were recording his entire life. More recently, the plot line of a short Marvel TV series was similar, WandaVision. The whole reality that people were experiencing was created as a fantasy by Wanda. They didn't know they were not living in the real reality. Well, in both cases, and a lot of other shows and books that utilize the same plot theme, that the fantasy begins to unravel when, when evidence mounts that the fantasy is not reality. When, when there's a glitch in the matrix, if we want to use a phrase from another show that used that plot line. Well, when there's a movie or a TV show, confusing reality and fantasy, it's either humorous or, or interesting. Not so, though, when the question involves our own lives. When the question involves our current and future realities, when the question revolves around, are we still in rebellion against God or have we been reconciled? How can we know that our current reality is reconciled? How can we know that our future reality is recreated? Paul writes, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This verse is tied to the sentence we've been looking at. Some of our versions handle the, the broken grammar differently than others, but it's all part of one sentence. There's no new ver main verb here. Paul's connected this condition to what's already described. We are reconciled if we meet this condition. The reconciliation of all Christ's work. But the assurance that we're part of it is if we use the reality test. Christ's reconciliation is a glorious thing. And yet, in order to know if we have received it, Paul informs us that we need to look at the evidence presented by our lives. Our, our past reality was filled with alienation, hostility towards God, and that reality displayed itself through evil deeds. 
Well, our new reality likewise will, will display itself. We need to look for the evidence. Is there a display of the new reality? Specifically, the evidence word look for is whether or not we are continuing in the faith, in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Notice that little article, though, that's in front of the word faith. The faith. We must continue in the faith. That little article, that, that informs us that Paul is referring here to a, to a, to a body of content, uh, to a, a doctrinal set of truths that define the faith, that provide this foundation for reconciliation. Paul is not addressing faith as a feeling. He's talking about faith, a body of content. When it, when it comes to faith, Often I think we confuse this distinction. We, we focus on the, the feeling of faith, a, a fervent belief in something. People pride themselves on, on having faith. But as I've said before, if you define, okay, what are you having faith in? They, they cannot define it. It's impossible to define what their faith is in. They simply believe, and, and pretty much all you can pin them down to is they have faith in the fact that they have faith. That is the feeling of faith. That is not the faith. The faith, as I said, is a doctrinal set of truths. The faith has objective content. We can write it down. Yes, there's a belief element. We have to believe in these truths. But if you're asked, what do you believe in? Here it is. Here's the content that defines the faith. And we must persist in believing in the content. In fact, Paul goes so far as he assigns a name to this doctrinal content that he's calling the faith. He, he gives it a name. He says the faith is the gospel. You may recall that I mentioned at, at the outset of this series that, that a lot of what drove Paul to write this letter is that there were doctrinal problems creeping into this church here in Colossae. We haven't really gotten to the problems yet, but, but Paul is laying the framework that he's going to use for ad addressing them because every single one of the problems ultimately is a deviation from the gospel message. All of the problems represent a departure from the doctrinal content of the faith. They depart from the gospel. Remember, Paul's writing to save people. These are people who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've heard that he died for their sins and rose again, that he lived sinless himself, he didn't deserve to die, that he can be their sinless substitute. They, they heard all that, they, they heard that their sins are forgiven by God and entirely because of the sinless Son of God. They, they heard of that, they believed it was real. And for that reason, they were saved. They believed the gospel message. The, the problems arose because other people came after that and confused them. They, they started telling them that, that really faith involves more than just the message of the cross. There's more to it. You have to believe in, in what Jesus did, but then you have to add more stuff to that. And what Paul is saying, even before he gets to specifics here, he, he's saying, I would say he's yelling as loud as you can in a letter, yell. He's saying, no, there is not more. Is to the gospel. The gospel. All the Colossians need to do is look at the world around them and they'll easily discover that the gospel message that they first heard, 
the, the message that gave them hope originally, that is the same message that's being proclaimed, he says, in all creation under heaven. Now, certainly we can give Paul latitude for a little hyperbole. Paul is not confused. He, he is not saying that every single person in, in this world at his point in time knows what the gospel message of the cross is. He wouldn't even say that today because we know there's people that have never heard of the cross. What he's claiming is that everywhere the gospel has gone, it has been the same message. In fact, it's the very message that Paul himself, remember Paul has never actually been to this church that he's writing to. It's the very same message that Paul himself is a minister of. The Colossians do not need any new ideas to ensure that they're reconciled. What they need is to examine themselves and discover that they're persisting in the original message, that they're continuing in the faith, that they're hanging on to the gospel. That's the evidence that shows that they're living in their present reality and waiting for the future reality, the reality of reconciliation, the future of recreation. In little over a month, I and several others in the church are, are going to take a trip to Germany and we will help our missionaries. And when we return, I know that we're all going to be asked to produce our passports when we get off the plane, arriving back in the United States, because we're going to be asked to show the evidence that we are truly U.S. citizens. Well, similarly, a, a persistence in the gospel message, that's the evidence that we are living in the present reality of, reconcil of reconciliation. If the evidence that we have peace with God through the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. He is the one who handled our rebellion and made peace. He is the one that is recreating us so that we no longer have those evil deeds, that all we have is righteousness. Are we hanging on to that? That is the question that we all need to ask ourselves. When you examine your life, do you have evidence in your life, the evidence that you are hanging on to the gospel message, that you're holding on to the faith? Not that you say, I, I, have, I have great faith, I believe in something. Do you believe in the gospel message? Is that what you're hanging on to? That Jesus died for your sins? Or do you allow new ideas to pull you back and forth, to and fro? In other words, are you passing the reality test? Persistence. That's the passing grade. The reality test, persistence. Paul has told us what was our past reality of rebellion. Paul has told us what is our present reality of reconciliation. And Paul has told us what will be our future reality of recreation. He's told us all this and then he's given us this test. The reality test persistence but why why has he given us all this it goes back to Paul's overall goal his overall goal is to magnify the transforming work of Jesus Christ our peacemaker the one who reconciles us to God the Father Paul wants to lift Christ up 
That's why he's writing. Paul wants us to celebrate our Savior. He wants us to glory in, in what Jesus has done. For, for that reason, as we leave today, I think we can take all of this that we've seen in this sentence. I would suggest that if we think about our verses this morning demonstrate that, that we celebrate our Savior by continuing in the faith of his peacemaking work. We continue having faith in what he has done. Our, we celebrate our Savior by continuing faith in his peacemaking work. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We hang on to it. We continue faith in what he has done. Remember the example of Grace at the beginning, caring for patients who, who really give her no reason to do so. Well, we certainly did not give Jesus any reason to do anything good for us. We certainly did not give him reason to save us. What we were was ugly, horrid, hideous, deserving of eternal damnation. Yet Jesus came. He died for us. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And he offered to use his sacrifice to cover our sins, making peace between God and us through gracious forgiveness. Our past reality is that we were rebels. But he reconciled us so that he could recreate us. There is something to celebrate. And we celebrate it by persisting in faith in the finished work of Christ. So we celebrate our Savior by continuing faith in his peacemaking work. What a glorious Savior. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have seen again the work of Christ. It's laid out for us in your word. Father, my prayer is that we would indeed be men and women who celebrate what we have in Christ. Father, that has to begin by being men and women who truly have received what Christ has done. So if there is someone here today that does not know Jesus as Savior, I pray that today would be the day that you would draw them to yourself through the power of your Spirit so that Christ would be magnified in another life. And for all of us who know Christ as Savior, may we hang on to what we've received, rejoicing and celebrating Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.